Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Hello, Johnny. Hello, my love. Hello, everyone. So what's new, John? Well, we are beginning, I think, a new phase in life Mm -hmm. for you and I. That's true. And that's kind of been exciting. Yeah. Um, One thing, we went on a trip to see my mom and your nephew, and we rearranged the house, so... Actually, nothing too exciting. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Our life's always exciting with you. Oh, and we had lots of smoke all week, right? That's right, from the Canadian fires. Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of smoke. Yep. We couldn't even walk. It affected both of us. Yeah. Um, You've been working on recording the poem. Well, actually, you finished recording the poem Evangeline by Longfellow. You did that in record time. Yeah, it went fast, mm-hmm. and I have to say I was underwhelmed by. I was going to ask you how you thought of <laughs> yeah, what you thought about it. I enjoyed Hiawatha a lot more. Right. And today, I guess the subject of our discussion will be on my favorite poet. Right. And I don't think that Longfellow ever sort of ascends to that ethereal quality. Right. That I find in my favorite poets, but Longfellow has a lot of good material mm-hmm. for I his time particularly Hiawatha. Right. Hiawatha changed, really, my life for a while. (laughs) As you know, when I get excited about things, it tends to bubble over into into everything else in life for us. You kind of like the ending of Evangeline more than the beginning, right? Yes. Evangeline was a, a developmental poem that I think by the end actually achieved Something really beautiful. You almost um, cried. But it took it took some time to get there. Mm-hmm. This past Monday, you posted the second part of your chat with our friend Raymond Maholland. Right. I think that went well. Yeah, it did go well. So for this week, we were thinking about what we'd like to talk about. And you mentioned, as you were just saying, a poem by one of your favorite poets. And that would be T.S. Eliot. And this poem is called Journey of the Magi. Right. I read this poem at my father's funeral Mm -hmm. because it strikes me as a poem of the search, Mm -hmm. of constantly and unrestfully searching. And that was my father. And I thought it exemplified him incredibly well. Mm -hmm. Don't know where my dad stood in relation to Christ. I would like to think that at some point he accepted the Lord. Mm -hmm. I don't know that. I hold on to it, hopefully. Right. I miss my mom and my dad mm-hmm. almost as a pair rather than even as individuals. As a unified force. Yeah, they really were. <laughs> they were. Yep. It was like my parents were one in a really important way mm-hmm. in our lives. And Like when we went to visit my mom and yep. she's in the nursing home and she lays in bed all day long. Yep. And she said... Do you remember what she said? I do. I remember it very well. It stuck with me. She said, I miss your dad. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly how she said that, mm-hmm. but it was that sense in which she it was said, the way we she did said it. Everything together. Right. And they did. And you told me they always held hands mm-hmm. no matter where they were. And you and I do well, that constantly. They're a unified force, just like yes. your parents were. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, so I thought it, this the poem we were, go- we're going to discuss was a good one because we are in June, halfway through the year, and halfway to Christmas. Yes, and this is a Christmas and, poem. Right. It's called Journey of the Magi by T.S. Eliot. So before we start on the poem, we're going to talk about some background information. So firstly, you recorded Journey of the Magi for Simple Gifts. 
two years ago. Right. Two, Almost three years when ago. We started. Yeah, it was um, one of the first things you recorded. Simple gifts. Mm-hmm. I decided I wanted to do Elliot, which is no surprise. I think if I were to say who the most important poet of the 20th century is, it would be T.S. Eliot. Mm-hmm. Do you think he's the most influential in your life? I think so. I, I love C.S. Lewis as an apologist, mm-hmm. as a Christian. And I learned more from C.S. Lewis in terms of his as, essay work. I was going to say as an essayist. Right. But C.S. Lewis as a poet <laughs> doesn't quite measure up to T.S. Eliot. Right. And there's some interesting things about that because of how their lives were at the same time. But we'll talk about that in a couple minutes. Okay. Okay. So for the past two Decembers, you posted Journey of the Magi in honor of Christmas. Right. So if anybody wants to hear you read it, it's on Simple Gifts. And right. you you have the link in the description, as right. always. And I, I think there's something to be said for listening to someone read a poem mm-hmm. who really loves it. Right. And I love this poem. That's for sure. Deeply and profoundly. From the very first time I read it, I think I love this poem. Okay, so let's talk about the background information. Who? Let's start with who wrote this poem. Go ahead. Thomas Stern's. Eliot. Okay, so let's give us some background information on T.S. Eliot. He goes by T.S. Right, T.S., just like mm-hmm. C.S., right. C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton. It was sort of the convention of the age right. to... J.R.R. Tolkien. J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> your initials. Right, you yeah. gave your initials rather than your name. And one interesting thing is that he was born in 1888, which was just before C.S. Lewis. Right, so he was like, what? Six, Less than 10 years. years. Yep. And he died two years after C.S. Lewis right. in 1965. So died in 63, the same day as both JFK Aldous Huxley and, and JFK. On the same day they died. Which is weird. It was weird. <laughs> three people dying on the exact yes, same day who were famous people. influential people in the world. Yep. <laughs> okay. So he was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. So that puts, when you think about him, that puts you in reference to where he where and he was. In many ways, C.S. Lewis and T.S. Eliot were two of my heroes. Mm-hmm. Even That's for atheist. I loved their stances. I loved the fact that both of them, in contradiction to the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, yeah. took a stance in favor of Christianity. Yeah. Which was, you know, like <laughs> standing today against the woke. Right. It's right. like someone who's really taking a countercultural position. Mm-hmm. Both of them did it. Right. But in different like, ways. In different, right. in very different ways. Right. And in fact, C.S. Lewis did not like T.S. Eliot. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know exactly what Eliot's response to C.S. Lewis was. Mm-hmm. We could, I guess, but, but research you, that. You did say that they did collaborate later on in life at the very, very end, of end their time together right. they did do a, a certain collaboration with one another mm-hmm. that seemed to bring them together and i think that's important because mm-hmm. both of them were christians in, different in the ways. academic <laughs> world in the intellectual circles right and they both were radicals in maybe that way. right and influential in their own little sphere of right. influence right right and it was fascinating to me that at the end it seemed to me that they should have been compatible long before this yeah. but they weren't right 
And I think most of that was C.S. Lewis's rejection Mm -hmm. of the modernist view of things. Right, right. And maybe justly so. Mm -hmm. Because C.S. Lewis was who he was supposed to reach. Right. And Eliot was there for who he was supposed to reach. Exactly. And I adore both of them, still to this day. Yeah. So T.S. Eliot was a poet, an essayist, a playwright, an editor. You said a banker? A banker, yes. (laughs) Early on in his career. Mm -hmm. And Eliot is an odd figure Mm -hmm. because as a poet, he managed on the basis of a very small collection of poetry and critical commentary to rise to the pinnacle of the intellectual world. Yeah. I mean, he became, in a lot of ways, the poet of the 20th century. Yeah. I was going to say he was one of the major players. But, but that is based on an almost infinitesimally small, small collection of work. Right, right. He rose to great prominence on the wave of his poem Wastelands. The Wasteland. Right. Yes. And that was an important one. But for me, his great work is not the Wasteland, but the, f- the Four Quartets. I was going to say it's definitely which, the Four Quartets for you. Like the Ariel poems, mm-hmm. was a post-conversion and set we'll, of poetry. And we'll talk about the aerial poems later. Right. right. Okay, so this was something that when I was young, I always thought T.S. Eliot was British. Mm-hmm. And I was. <laughs> and he thought of himself as British. Yeah. Actually. I was surprised to find out he was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and he was born to a, a Boston family, an upper class family. They were Unitarian, in fact. So, and he didn't become a British citizen until he was about like. 39 years old, right? right. 1920s. Yeah. Right before World War II, he became a British citizen. Yep. So that w- that was interesting, yeah. Some of the poetry he wrote, um, and, and one of them that we'd like to do later is The Hollow Men. Yes, and that was a pre-conversion poem. Yeah, yeah. It was actually after The Wasteland, mm-hmm. and it was built on a lot of the extra materials left over from The Wasteland. Yeah. He wrote The Hollow Men, yeah. and The Hollow Men is absolutely one of my favorite poems yeah, yeah, of all I love time. That. I like that poem a yeah. lot. Memorized it, of course, with you mm-hmm. in order to present at... Except I always disagree with you on the ending. But we'll talk about that later when we discuss the <laughs> You're not allowed to disagree with me, woman. <laughs> so some of his other poetry is the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, mm-hmm. the Wasteland, as you said before, Four Quartets, as you said before, Garantian, all of those you've read for Simple Gifts. Yes. So if you're interested in T.S. Eliot, oh, go to Simple I would Gifts. I encourage all of our listeners mm-hmm. to go and listen to the poems by T.S. Eliot. Or, or read them for yourself. Whatever. Read for yourself, yeah, sure. whichever one. But that's probably not as good as having me read it <laughs> because I love T.S. Eliot. That's true. And, and I having am. someone who really is a lover of the poems read them for you, mm-hmm. I think, is a real treat. And I love hearing you read them. <laughs> <laughs> so the poem we're going to talk about today, The Journey of the Magi, it's a 43-line poem, so it's not very long at all. And it initially was a part of a series of pamphlets called, as you said before, the Aerial Poems. It was released by Faber and Guire, a publishing house, where T.S. Eliot actually worked. And then later he published it in his own collection of poems. Right. In fact, there were a variety of poets writing Mm -hmm. aerial poems 
each year, and Elliot was just one of them. Yeah. But for the most part, Elliot said himself that he kept the term Ariel poems for his own poetry that he wrote at this time. I think it's like three or four poems, Mm -hmm. and it's really just a collection of Elliot's post-conversion. Okay, let's just go back a little bit. He was asked by Faber and Guire, Mm -hmm. the publishing house, to write a poem every year for a series of these illustrated pamphlets. Right, and some others were as well. But they were like a holiday-themed pamphlet, and they were going to be sent to the company's clients, and they were called the Ariel Series. And this poem was the first one that he wrote in the series. The very first one. I didn't okay. know that until you yeah, let me yeah. know that. And so he, you said about his conversion. Well, he was converted the year before. And it's interesting. Be, later on, we'll talk about this. He never told anybody. He never told anybody he was converted. Right. He it was, was very quiet, quiet about it. For yeah. Him. And, and not I think surprisingly. That, I think that plays into this poem he, for real understandably, was not going to announce this too broadly to the world in which he lived. Because even then, it was not something that would recommend you to the academic world. Right. You were, at that point, going to be an outcast if you were a Christian. Mm -hmm. Because that was completely contrary to the zeitgeist. To this yeah, this progressiveness. The, right, the progressive time. Mm-hmm. So to be an atheist at the time would have been the thing that would have the cool recommended thing. you mm-hmm. to the academic community. Right, right. Not right. to become a Christian. Right. And that plays into an, in an important way to the nature of this poem itself. Yeah, that's what I'm going to talk about later. Don't say anything now. Okay, I'll shut my mouth. <laughs> First of all, I don't. Did we say when the poem was published? Nineteen twenty-seven. Nineteen twenty-seven. That's when it was. It was made into a pamphlet. Okay. Then it was published in a collection in nineteen thirty-six, and then again in nineteen sixty-three. Just, right. I think that's important to know. Nineteen twenty-seven. That was before World War Two. Well, yeah. If you think about that, the upheaval in Europe at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Hitler was about to rise. Yep. And World War Two was in the making for sure. Okay. So, so it's the it's what Eliot calls in the, the Four Quartets. Right. The years of l'entre deux guerres mm-hmm. in French, between the two wars. Okay. Okay, so we talked about T.S. Eliot. We mm-hmm. talked about the time. Now let's talk about how this poem was written. It's a narrative poem. It's written from the point of view of one of the Magi. Right. It's As a, we said, this sort is of, Christmas in June. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of a monologue. I yes. mean, it's not sort of a monologue. It is a monologue. It's free verse. Right. Some of the literary devices used are irony, mm-hmm. symbolism, illusion, theme. What do you think the theme is? The theme is clearly that of conversion, of changing mm-hmm. from one world to the next. Right. This is very clear for Eliot because at this moment he has really made the transition. Yeah. I think he's almost, in a way, ashamed. And I don't mean ashamed in the sense of afraid to say it, but in, ashamed in the sense of he has now converted to Christianity. Yeah. And that is not something that he understands is going to be recommending I mean, he's him only one to year. the academic community. Yeah, he's only a year into it. And the literary his new community life. of which right. he is a part. Mm-hmm. And, and and in that first year, it's like, yeah, you're you're trying to work it all out. Right. He's almost like 
wow, I've converted to Christianity and I'm not sure how to present this to you mm -hmm. because I have been on the basis of my earlier poetry, the modernist. Right. And now I'm turning back to the Christian <laughs> worldview. That's interesting. Sounds yeah. like someone else I know. Um, I think another theme would be death and rebirth. Yes, for sure. Mm -hmm, definitely. Okay, so the poem comes to us in three stanzas. And we, you and I talked about this before. The first stanza is a negative view on everything. Right. Right. The second view turns to optimism. Mm -hmm. A more positive note. Right, it's a Bethlehem moment when we find Jesus. Right. And then the last stanza feels like a reflective, yes. contemplative. Much more philosophical. Yeah. And the, and the other thing we were talking about tonight when we were on our walk, we were talking about pronouns. Pronouns. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah. The, Elliot's pronouns. Yeah. Yep. The we and the them. The we and the them. He separates that in the first two stanzas. Yeah. You know, we and them. And at first I didn't catch the we in the last stanza, but as you recited it to me, I realized there is there is more we in the last stanza. Right. But, but still, the last it's a very stanza intensely personal, personal yeah. understanding. He's like processing what it is he did in his mm -hmm. earlier life when he went to see the Christ child. Right. You mean the last stanza? Yeah, in the very last yeah, stanza. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And what it means. So, and as you read through the first stanza, it's like everything, almost every line has something just negative. Yes, everything and then right. the second stanza every line has something positive and the last stanza everything has something personal Should very contemplative very philosophical mm -hmm. and in a sense processing this whole notion that we talked about earlier of the journey of life mm -hmm. towards the ultimate towards god right and that really is what this poem is all about right it's the conversion moment. It's that change from an old view of things to a new view of things. And Eliot is really processing, I think, his own life in yeah, this poem. But it's not just that. It's there's something more. When you introduced this poem to me, it was so quiet and peaceful and earthy. There's nothing exciting <laughs> about it at all. Yes. If you just read it through it's the first, very prosaic. If you read it through the first time, you'd be like, okay, maybe majority of people might just pass it by. But if you stop and look and observe and um, really look hard at it, what would that be? I don't know, but I, I mean, and wait, and I think the thing about it, and I was thinking about it tonight after we talked about it on our walk. And the thing that really hit me was that <laughs> you and I are photographers. Yep. That's our business when we're not doing this. That's how we make money. Try <laughs> <laughs> to try to stay afloat. Yes. <laughs> and I look at this and it dawned on me tonight that this is like snapshots. It's like a picture album. It, it's pictures. It's photographs. Huh. Interesting. Um, it's one photograph after another. Yeah. And... You know, it really is. Right. I never really thought of right. it that way. Because I'm, I'm thinking about later on when he says about three, you, we've talked about this before, the three trees on a low sky. Yes, three trees on a it, low sky. It reminds me of the time when you and I were sitting in the woods over there. Uh, you were reading to me and I try to practice taking pictures every day. All the time. 
Right. And so I looked and I saw these three little nuts sitting there, hickory nuts. Mm-hmm. There was a little a little bit of light shining on them. And I thought, well, that looks kind of nice. So I took these pictures of these little nuts. <laughs> Just ordinary things. But yep. when I took them home and put them on the computer and blew them up, it was like, wow, these little ordinary objects. And that's what this poem is. Yeah. It's like snapshots. And each one is these little ordinary things. Mm-hmm. These ordinary thoughts, these ordinary ideas become beautiful. It, this is why, you know, it, and I really hadn't articulated it well, mm-hmm. but this is why this poem so profoundly spoke to me of my father. Yeah. He was so he was, much the prosaic man of the day. Mm-hmm. He was a carpenter and he did carpenter things and, all his whole most, life. And his old, his life was like snapshots. Yeah. Yeah, all of these of the ordinary of the ordinary, mm-hmm. and that really is, in many ways, what this poem is all about. Right, it's like, and then and then I remembered your conversion. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't want to say conversion because it wasn't my secondary it was, conversion. My coming it wasn't back really. To it was coming back. It was just ordinary. Yes, and and then it took me back to my conversion, which was just it was just ordinary. Yeah. It's like I, there's this extraordinary yeah. moment of ordinariness. Right. Yeah. And I knelt down on something that was very ordinary as a, a huge pillow, and it was just a very ordinary thing in the house. And yeah. Stood up. And yeah. And, and my whole world changed, but right. And yet it stayed exactly right. The it same. was stayed exactly the same. That's what this poem is. It really is. So if people it, could, it exemplifies that so clearly. Yeah, if people could read it in that way, because right. the most of the Christian life is ordinary. Yeah, ordinariness. And the conversion is not that suddenly your world is invaded by lightning and this thunder. Supernatural. Yeah, this supernatural. It's that supernatural reality is reality. Right. It's that you recognize God is present in the simplistic reality of life itself. Right. My dad is a carpenter. Right. Right. And that to me was the recognition. There is no thunder and lightning Mm -hmm. in any of my conversive conversion experience. And I think, I think Elliot, I think his conversion, because he, after he converted, nobody knew. Right. Or I shouldn't say nobody knew. He didn't vocalize it. Right. And Lewis, yep. he was the same way. Same he, way. He says he went to the zoo. Yep. And he came back a Christian. <laughs> and he came back a Christian. <laughs> it's just the ordinary. God right. just takes the ordinary. It's it's not this wild And God can use that too. Of, of a supernatural <laughs> right. reality. And, it's and, a recognition that the natural reality right. points to the reality of God, right. which is beyond this world and, and more real and there's, than anything we experience here. And there's nothing wrong with not having a Constantine conversion. <laughs> or a Pauline conversion, <laughs> right. where suddenly Christ reveals himself to you in mm-hmm. this magical vision. No. It doesn't happen that way for the most part. Right. He can reveal himself to you in just the ordinary. Right. That's what this poem is. I think so. Yeah. And in fact, I think the conclusion, the the not the conclusion, but the the turning point in this poem mm-hmm. is when Eliot says in the person of his narrator, it was 
and, and this is the moment of Bethlehem when he sees the baby Jesus. It was, you may say, satisfactory. Right. Well, he said, finding the place it was, you may yeah, say. Yeah, finding a place it was, you may say, satisfactory. And then standing up. And I think up, that's the greatest mm-hmm. understatement in all of history. Right. And standing right? up from there, and like you said, it changes your life completely but it doesn't change your life completely because you're still in the same <laughs> yes, place. Because you're you right on. where you were before. Right. But you're so right everything where is you're the supposed same, to be. And yet everything mm-hmm. is different. Right. Yes. That's that paradox mm-hmm. of the Christian reality. Right. So we haven't even started the poem yet. <laughs> and I think we've actually given the the most important elements of what it means. Yeah. So good. <laughs> okay, so I am a Christian, with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and remember... You can have your religious cake and eat it, too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.